evening and welcome everybody. Um, welcome to this Cambridge Science Festival lecture. Um, my name is Susan Francis. I'm publisher for the Physical Science Book Programme at Cambridge University Press. And it gives me great pleasure to welcome tonight's speaker, Professor Clive Oppenheimer. Clive is Professor of Volcanology uh, at the Department of Geography here in Cambridge. And I first met him as a consequence of his work on a book called Eruptions That Shook the World. This was a long project, possibly longer than either Clive or I had anticipated. Um, and uh, the wait was undoubtedly worth it. Um, the book came on, um, went on to become a great success for us and even inspired the recent film on Netflix called Into the Inferno, directed by Werner Herzog. Now, during the time when I was working with Clive, um, I got treated to occasional insights into his work and travels. Um, Clive's one of those authors who gives me itchy feet, and every so often I would receive an email from some obscure part of the world, um, sometimes with a photograph of Clive in some jaw-droppingly beautiful scenery, um, and it's certainly enough to make you somewhat dissatisfied with a desk-bound job. But tonight, we have the opportunity to take an armchair journey with Clive to the most southerly part of the continent, um, sorry, of the planet, um, and to the volcano Mount Erebus, not only to enjoy the beauty and the excitement of volcanoes, but also to learn how scientists have come to understand them and the impacts that they have on our global environment. So this is just a little information about his, the film which you might like to check out online. And this is really partly to embarrass Clive, but <laughs> it, it provides a nice uh, juxtaposition to, um, yes, this is, this is the photograph that I received from Clive from Antarctica, gleefully holding a, an early copy of, of his book. Um, so uh, yes, please sit back and enjoy, and uh, I'll hand you over to Clive Oppenheim. Thank you very much, Susan. Uh, thank you all for coming along. Uh, thank you very much for this introduction. Um, yes, I, that was how I was dressed about 15 minutes ago, and I thought, it's, no, it's overdressed <laughs> this occasion. Right, let's uh, find a PowerPoint. Not that one. Let's find another one. So, indeed, I would like to take you to uh, a volcano in Antarctica called Mount Erebus, and it, it may, it, it always surprises some people that there are volcanoes down in Antarctica because you think, <laughs> oh, it's, it's all icy and lots of snow, very, very cold. What's a volcano, which is hot, doing down there? And, and of course, um, if you're a volcano at 1,000 degrees, you don't really care if it's, if it's minus 30 or, or plus 30. Uh, so there's nothing in Antarctica to stop volcanoes existing. Um, I started working in Antarctica in 2003 <coughs> with the US Antarctic program. Uh, and it was my lucky day when I fell into the program because uh, Erebus proved to be the most um, incredible place to work, but also the most scientifically rewarding volcano that I've, I've studied. And uh, what I'd like to do is, is to give you a flavor for the research that uh, quite a large team of um, of researchers, students, postdocs, uh, what we've been up to over the last uh, five to ten years or so. Um, 
as we'll see, the other thing about Erebus is that it is on an island called Ross Island. I don't know if I have a pointer anywhere. If not, I'll use my <coughs> finger. Um, so here's Antarctica, here's sea ice. The Transantarctic Mountains stretch across here, and Ross Island is just about there somewhere. And it's more or less due south from New Zealand. So we fly to New Zealand, and then we fly south on a military jet uh, down to uh, the island. And Ross Island was where Scott and Shackleton had their bases for their, their attempt to reach the South Pole and do all the other geologizing and map making and biology that they did just over 100 years ago. And uh, one of the things for me that's, um, that's been quite powerful is that we were almost literally walking in their footsteps when, when we go there. It's only 100 years ago, but there's, there's archaeology from their presence. And uh, we're, they, they were the pioneers that, that made the work that we do today possible. Uh, so we feel quite connected with it. So I'd like to uh, begin by talking a little bit about the discovery of Ross Island and of Erebus, the first ascents. And I will, I will uh, package this as the heroic era of Antarctic exploration. And we begin in uh, the 18, early 1840s when Sir James Clark Ross sailed with the ships, the Erebus and the Terror, uh, on a quest to find the South Magnetic Pole. <coughs> Uh, Ross was very excited to have been chosen to command this voyage because he had already uh, been the first person to reach the North Magne Magnetic Pole, and he was very keen to bag both of the both of these um, these goals. He he was uh, very fortunate in some ways that uh, as he as he was travelling, setting up magnetic observatories, he reached Tasmania, where he spent a while with uh, Franklin, who was a governor in Tasmania. Uh, and he uh, discovered that an American expedition and a French expedition had tried to go on exactly the same route that he'd planned to go, and uh, he was, this was absolutely disgraceful because it was really, um, you know, if you were an honorable person, you wouldn't go deliberately on the route that you knew the British were going to go on. <laughs> and uh, so he chose a completely different route, and uh, it's because of that that he found Ross Island, he penetrated deep, into the Southern Ocean, uh, which he might not have done if he'd gone on his original journey. Uh, this scene here of the Erebus and Terror in encountering the, the icebergs uh, illustrates a very dramatic part of the voyage when they, they reached um, an almost impenetrable uh, uh, wall of ice and, and the ships are crunching into it and they, he finds a passage and zips through, and then they get into calm ocean behind it. And that's what enables him to get very far south. Uh, and it's an incredible feat of, um, of seamanship, which, which all subsequent Antarctic explorers remarked on, uh, including Scott. Uh, they reached around um, 78 degrees south latitude and were amazed to, to see, for the first time anyone had seen, this island with a smoking volcano. And he named, so he discovered it in, uh, at the end of January in 1841, and he named it Erebus after one of the ships, one of the two ships under his command. And he named uh, the other volcano, the extinct volcano on the island, Mount Terror, after the other vessel. 
And as a little aside, um, only about eight months or so after, the, after Ross was back in Britain, uh, the Erebus and Terror were re-equipped with a locomotive, steam engine, and were under the command of Franklin, Sir John Franklin, on his ill-fated expedition to find the Northwest Passage. And uh, they, of course, um, were never seen again. And one of the exciting things is that just in the last <coughs> few years, both the Erebus and the Terror, the wrecks have been found uh, in relatively shallow water in the Canadian Arctic. Uh, so there's a very interesting um, marine archaeological story that will emerge uh, that may shed some light on what, what ha actually happened to the Franklin expedition. We fast forward to uh, the Edwardian era around 1907-1909, uh, the Nimrod expedition led by Sir Ernest Shackleton. Here he is uh, checking out the boat and meeting some of the, uh, the uh, fine people of London. And he set up his base at uh, Cape a place called Cape Royds on Ross Island. He set it up near a penguin colony, uh, which would enable um, a sort of ready supply to the, the canteen of, of food. And uh, they could see Erebus from, from the camp. And uh, he says, for us living under its shadow, the longing to climb it and penetrate the mysteries beyond the veil soon became irresistibly strong. And it was basically the first thing they did the after they put up the, uh, the hut and got themselves comfortable, the first expedition was to climb Erebus. And you, you can uh, uh, see the hut is still there. Uh, some of the supplies are still there. This is the hut where they found the whiskey uh, under the floorboards a few years ago, and it, it, some of it was sent back to the distillery in, in Scotland, and they, they uh, I think you can now buy the kind of recipe of the centenary Shackleton uh, stock. <coughs> There's Erebus in the background, and uh, so they set off to climb it in, in March <coughs> of 1908, and among the, the assault party were um, Edgeworth David, Sir Kenneth and Edward David on the right there, and Douglas Mawson on the left, two Australian geologists. And geology was a very important part of the, the early exploration of Antarctica, uh, along, of course, with, with the, the, the sort of uh, the exciting things like getting to the pole, uh, whether it were magnetic or geographic, and, of course, uh, discovering lots of new species in, in the oceans and doing meteorology and so on. Uh, they, they climbed Erebus in, in a few days. One of the things they were uh, amazed to find were some steaming ice towers up near the summit. And uh, one of the nice things that you can do on Erebus is to look at some of these old photographs from over 100 years ago and locate exactly where they were taken from. They reached the summit on the 10th of March, 1908, so just over... 200 years ago, uh, sorry, 100 years ago, uh, we stood on the verge of a vast abyss. There would come from below a big dull boom and immediately great globular masses of steam would rush upwards. The volcano was very active at this time as it was when Ross first saw it. Uh, they witnessed explosions and ashy clouds and lava in 1841. They saw it active again in 1908. <coughs> and 
although we've got a lot of gap, gaps in the observations that have been made of the volcano, it seems it's been uh, perpetually active. Then, of course, uh, Captain Scott arrives a couple of years or so later on the Terra Nova expedition, and he sets up his base not far away at Cape Evans, and a party climb again in 1912, and uh, the, this photograph is taken by Frank Debenham, who became the first professor of geography in Cambridge. So the first professor of, of my department, and he founded the Scott Polar Research Institute, and he was part of this uh, second ascent of Mount Everest. So here's the hut, there's the volcano again, and there are, um, there's Frank Debenham uh, doing his surveying quite a long way up the mountain. There's one of the sketches of the crater from his notebook. And uh, these are, <coughs> this is one of the camps near a glacier on the way up to the summit. And again, you can go back there 100 years later, and uh, very little has changed. Uh, this this um, is within the summit Calderas. This is only about two kilometers from the crater. This was the, the, their highest camp from which they, they made the final uh, push to get to the crater. And there it is. In uh, 100 years later, you can see some little stones, stones that were used to hold down the tent flaps. And here they are at the summit. Uh, among them is uh, Gran, the Norwegian, who um, escaped with his life because when they were coming down from the summit, uh, the geologist Priestley realized that they'd left uh, a can canister of exposed film up at the crater rim. And Gran says, I'll go back and get it. He goes up to the top. There's a, a big explosion. Uh, Priestley and the others are fearing the worst. And then Gran Amir appears from the, the smoke somewhat dazed. Uh, so he lived to tell the tale. And uh, the last thing that we, uh, one of the last... Um, notes in Priestley's diary from, from the summit is he said when we, when we left our, our high camp we had a couple of bags of food left over and half a can of kerosene that we left behind and uh, this is the photograph in the Scott Polar collection and if you look very carefully at it you can see they scribbled all of their names and they climbed on the 12th of the 12th of 1912 12th of December so it was um, possible with uh, <coughs> looking at the, the diaries and the maps from Frank Debenham and uh, Priestley's sledging diaries to, to reconstruct the route that they took up to the top. And uh, several of these camps now are historic sites and monuments because uh, this is, this is archaeology in an, in an Antarctic context. Uh, and so that was a little, a little aside, um, which leads us on to the, the kind of modern era of Antarctic exploration. And I show you this character here. This is a man called Philip Kyle, who graduated at Victoria University of Wellington in the 1960s. And he made his first trip in 1969 uh, to Antarctica. And he was back again uh, in December last year uh, on his 43rd, I think he's only missed a couple of seasons or so, 43 seasons down in Antarctica, uh, and many, many of them on Mount Erebus. So he is, uh, for me, he's Homo Antarcticus, 
Um, <laughs> he's not only worked on, on Erebus, he's, he's uh, done a lot of ge geologizing around uh, this part of Antarctica. And uh, this is part of the Pantheria. We don't, we don't uh, brave the Southern Ocean in a ship. We get on a, a C-17, um, which, which is uh, quite comfortable because they put airline-style seats in it. Uh, it lands on the ice shelf, and we're picked up in these, um, these trucks and taken to the, the main base of McMurdo, which is the largest scientific station on, in Antarctica. Uh, we don't have to manhaul anything. We don't have to use ponies. Uh, the helicopter will take us up to near the summit of Erebus. And we have snowmobiles that enable us to, to reach many parts of the mountain. So in fact, um, it's, it's relatively, you might think it's a crazy place to go all this way and, and the, the severe temperatures and the bad weather to study an active volcano when there are so many others. But actually, when you're there, because Erebus is so close to the largest scientific base, we have incredible logistics. Uh, being able to call up a helicopter to bring some <coughs> liquid nitrogen if we need it for one of the instruments. And the fact that there's snow and ice on the ground means that you can reach many parts of the volcano on snow machines and not have to trudge around, um, as, as I gather this BBC crew on Etna did uh, yesterday. <laughs> uh, our main hut is called Lower Erebus Hut, and it's, um, we're looking down at it here from about two kilometers away at the summit. Uh, we have a couple of cabins, which um, this one is called the garage. It's the US Antarctic Program, so this is the garage, which is a kind of workshop, uh, and it's where we fix the, the skidoos when they're broken. And this is where we, we uh, live and cook uh, and um, sit on the computer. Uh, you can see the tent scattered around. So that's where we live for about a month at a time. We have a lot of uh, conveniences. We have communications with the outside world, as you can see here. Uh, there's some oxygen. We're at high altitude. We do get cases of, of acute altitude sickness. This is the Erebus inner crater descent module that you can see there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if the weather's bad, uh, we have entertainment. We have here a television, and I don't know, you probably can't make out, but that's uh, David Attenborough. We're watching uh, Frozen Planet. <laughs> <laughs> and I think after a while, it did strike us that it was somewhat ironic that we're, we're sitting here in an, three and a half thousand meters up an active volcano watching uh, the BBC. Um, our, our one nod to the heroic era is that we still use Scott tents, so we do still, still uh, sleep outside, and and we do actually work pretty hard. When the weather's good, we've got to get a lot of equipment up to the crater and get it all working. And um, as you can imagine, it's not, an, it's not a very kind environment to a lot of scientific equipment. So we're continuously repairing things, figuring out what, why the power's gone down, uh, and so on, to collect the best data we can in that month or so that we're up, up there. And uh, at the same time, we're also fixing things like wind turbines that have, that have been destroyed during the winter. So uh, we're very busy when we're up there. Now, uh, some, some of the interesting features of Erebus that uh, make it somewhat distinctive and of, of uh, scientific value. Um, so it is a volcano. Um, we, 
when you apply for funding from the, from the National Science Foundation in the US, through the US Antarctic Program, uh, everything has to be hypothesis driven. And uh, we, this was our leading hypothesis that Erebus is a volcano. <laughs> <laughs> because we, we do so many things up there, it's, it's very hard to distill what we do into one, one thing. But it's a volcano, it's active, uh, it is a volcano that's in the middle of a, a plate. It's not on a plate boundary. It's in a rift environment, a bit like the East African Rift. Uh, the, this is a, a, a section with the Transantarctic Mountains on this side and an Erebus. We think it's a, a hotspot volcano, one that's, that's fueled by uh, a, a zone of, of hot um, mantle in the Earth's interior. And uh, it's also what we would term an alkaline volcanic province, which reflects the, the alkalis in the uh, magma. Uh, it has a permanent lava lake. This is uh, a view of the lava lake from the crater rim at, from a distance about 300 meters away. Uh, you can see that it's in perpetual motion, bubbling away. There's gas coming out of it. Uh, it's hot. And the, the lava lake is, is always there, and it, it gives us a very direct window into magmatic processes. So we're, we're effectively looking at the top part of the magma system of the whole volcano, which stretches down uh, to 20 kilometers or so below the surface. Uh, the rocks are of interest. The, the graph up here shows the silica against the alkali content. And, and the fact that there are all those different symbols shows the, the, that there's a a complex evolution of the magmas. They're not all the same, although the stuff that comes out of the top today uh, is, is a, uh, right at the top right there, it's called a rock called phonolite. It's called phonolite because it rings like a bell if you strike it. And uh, that is incredibly stable. If we look at the chemical composition of that, of that phonolite here for the last 30, 40 years, it's, it's not changed at all, which is incredible uh, from a volcanological perspective. And if we look at older rocks, in fact, we see no changes in the chemistry of the lavas for uh, 20,000 years or so. Uh, this is not Erebus, but it is a phonolite volcano. This is, of course, uh, Vesuvius, and uh, seen from Herculaneum. Here's the Roman city that was destroyed. Uh, then you can see it looks like Hong Kong, population density, very sensible, and five kilometers away, uh, there's Vesuvius. Uh, so there are... Erebus is currently the only active volcano that's erupting this particular composition, phonolite, which was erupted in the year 79 and uh, destroyed Pompeii and Herculaneum. I meant to bring some of these to show you. Erebus grows fantastically sized crystals up to 10 centimeters long. And uh, these are rather unusual, but you don't find them on many volcanoes. Uh, they're also, if you chop them in half, they have fantastic growth rings like tree, tree rings. Uh, and as, as I'll show you, they tell us quite a lot about how the volcano works. Erebus has a lava lake. Um, they're relatively rare phenomena. There are lava lakes at volcanoes in Ethiopia, in Hawaii, in Vanuatu. But um, none of the other ones do this. So Erebus has very powerful explosions where a large bubble of gas rises up through the magma conduit and ruptures at the surface and throws lava bombs into the air. 
And uh, this is puzzling as well. Why, did, why does this happen at all? And when it does happen, it might, there might be three of those a day, and it might do that for about a year. And then it'll become, uh, it'll stop doing that for, for a few years. So we have many questions. Why, why does a volcano change its behavior? Um, now, this isn't reflecting a lack of, of vegetables in our diet. Uh, <laughs> up, up at the top. Uh, this is one of the lava bombs that's been thrown out of the lava lake in one of these explosions. And this is also fantastic for us. It means if we want to get rock sa samples to study, we don't have to climb down to an exploding lava lake. We wait for the lava bombs to come to us. So we get lots of good rock samples. And then another extraordinary feature is that there are ice caves and ice towers up near the summit, like the ones that uh, Shackleton's uh, men and Scott's men discovered over 100 years ago. These are like Alice in Wonderland, Wonderland worlds of huge crystals, crystals that look like champagne glasses, gigantic hexagons, stalactites, and stalagmites. And you can see that they're extensive caves. Uh, they're full of fungi and bacteria, extreme trials uh, that have found this thermal, this unique thermal environment. Um, so there's a lot of interest in the microbiology. And it may be that some of these microorganisms are metabolizing the volcanic gases. Here's one of the ice towers. So uh, some of the techniques that we use in the field. Uh, the main thing that I, I've done over the years is to use an infrared spectrometer. So it's, it's got a large telescope that maybe you did see in that slide. And the way it works is it, um, it senses the, the infrared light being radiated from the surface of the lava lake. Uh, and that's, that's uh, pollinated by the telescope and recorded by the spectrometer. And it, the, the uh, infrared light has passed through all of the gas emissions. And those volcanic gases absorb very particular wavelengths of light according to the composition of the volcanic gases. So we can measure spectra. We can record spectra like this that have some very um, nice patterns that we call fingerprints of different gas molecules. So um, we have a, in this spectrum, this is carbon monoxide. And this little thing that looks like somebody's fat in the spectrum is carbonyl sulfide. And uh, these, these uh, are the best spectra I've ever seen collected on the volcano. Um, and it reflects the very low temperature in the very, very arid atmosphere. Most places you do this, you just see lots and lots of water vapor. Uh, but it's so dry here that we can get really fabulous gas spectra. We also use ultraviolet spectrometers. There are two here connected with a couple of telescopes. Uh, so where is the infrared? Um, gives us the, the ratios of different gas molecules. The ultraviolet is a way for us to get the, the flux of gas coming out, particularly the sulfur dioxide flux. So we know how many kilograms per second of sulfur dioxide are coming out, or how many tons per day. Something like 60 tons per day of sulfur dioxide. Uh, and once you have a flux, uh, and you measure all the other gases, then we can say how many kilograms of gold are coming out a year, how many kilograms of, of anything else that we can measure. We do a lot of thermal imaging, uh, which is, seems a rather obvious thing to do with a, a lava lake like this. 
uh, we've um, built thermal cameras, well, we haven't so much built the cameras, but we've built recording systems around them that are very environmentally secure that we can then leave running for the whole year or the whole 11 months that we're not up at the top of Erebus. And then when we get back, uh, we, we can collect the data that has been recorded. So we, we get very long time series of observations even when we're not there. And the thermal camera, of course, tells us about temperatures and heat output. Uh, but as, as I'll show you, we can also use these cameras to track the surface motion of the lava lake so we can see how fast it moves. Uh, we're very interested in the level of the lava lake, and we've measured that with an instrument called a LIDAR, terrestrial laser scanner. Uh, this is firing laser pulses that bounce off the lake and travel back. The travel time is recorded, gives the distance. And uh, what this has shown is that as, we, as, we've, as we've been going over the years, the lava lake level has varied by 20 meters or so, but it's also shown us that the, the lava lake is going up and down by about two meters or so every 10, meet, every 10 minutes. Um, this is our latest project, and uh, this is, has been built by a postdoc working with me, Niall Peters, and uh, uh, this is a radar. And you can see, um, you're probably as amazed as I am that this thing worked <laughs> when you see it, it sort of spilled out over, over the table. Uh, and it didn't work, and it didn't work. And every time it didn't work, Nar would um, get the pliers out and cut something else out of it until it worked. Uh, but it did, it did eventually work. And here are the, uh, these are two radar dishes. And this is a system that uh, we hope will continuously measure the height of the lava lake. And our next mission will be to take this to Hawaii uh, to look at the lava lake there. Um, and that will become, we hope, uh, an operational monitoring tool for the uh, Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. Uh, something like three million visitors <coughs> go to the national park and visit the volcano. So uh, there is a hazard there, and we hope that this will become uh, a useful uh, monitoring tool. And you can see the other instruments up at the top. You can see the office. <laughs> Occasionally, um, you, you've got a sort of gap in your data collection. And <laughs> And you've got the dropping, it, it turns out that there's been uh, very high winds and, and the, the rime ice has built up on the equipment. So uh, if this happens and nobody's there over, over the winter, then you just, have to, you just have to wait until the wind blows it all away again. Uh, but of course, the weather can be very, very severe. So that's the, the field work. Um, what else do we do? We do a lot of laboratory work. We take the rocks back. We slice them, we put them under microscopes, we take them to uh, very high energy synchrotron facilities like this one, the diamond facility near Didcot, and bombard minuscule, we can measure um, the concentrations of uh, different components in minuscule parts of a rock sample. So this is one of these large crystals, uh, which is probably about a centimeter across, and there are some little blobs called melt inclusions in here, we can, we can probe the composition of these melt inclusions. And this, this has been very powerful for us to be able to link what we can find out from the rocks with what we can measure at the surface, looking at the emissions of gases, looking at the behavior of the lava lake. 
We also do a lot of experiments with the rocks. We, we crush them up, turn them into a powder, fuse it, and then put it in an apparatus like this that we can take to very high pressure and temperature to simulate the conditions in a magma chamber uh, 10, 15 kilometers below the surface. And you do lots and lots of experiments at different pressures and temperatures, and then you very rapidly quench the sample so you drop it in a water bath and you look at what you've cooked. You look at the crystals, how much of each different crystal phase is present, and you do the, these, lots of these experiments and you find the experiment that gives you the same rock that you actually started with. And then you know what pressure and what temperature and what other chemical conditions the, the, the real magma is stored at beneath the volcanoes. This is another very powerful technique. Uh, we do a little bit of modeling. We've done some computational modeling of a lava lake attached to a pipe. And uh, we have also done some analog models where we have, uh, we get to play with golden syrup and things like that in, in the lab. Uh, and we have air pumps and various apparatus to try and probe uh, some of the phenomena that we see in the field and try and try and bring the, the theory towards the observation so we have a better understanding of how volcanoes work. So the next part is to go through some of the results from our work. And uh, the first one is, is really looking at the, the, the whole volcano, the whole volcanic system, the whole plumbing system of the volcano from the surface down to 20 kilometers or so. Uh, the crust, the thickness of the crust here is about 16 kilometers. And uh, one of the things that we found, um, this is a plot, each of these little circles is, is one of those tiny inclusions in a crystal taken from a rock sample from the volcano. And uh, the details really don't matter, but this is pressure. And we can model how deep those little, those crystals, where they were growing in uh, beneath the volcano. And the fact that we're finding very, very high pressures down here, this is um, eight kilobars, that, that's something like 20 kilometers down. So we have a record of, of pretty much everything from the surface down to about 20 kilometer, kilometers depth um, from, from the upper part of the mantle through the crust. And we can, we can build this of a conceptual model for what it would look like if we slice down through the volcano. Where are the magmas being stored? What kind of conditions are they under? And so we can come up with this kind of a graph, of a plot. Uh, the other thing that we find out from this analysis is that this is a very carbon-rich volcano. And we think even very deep down, carbon dioxide is, is fizzing out from the magmas. And the CO2 gas actually plays a very important role in changing the, the very um, primitive magmas that are the, 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 uh, the first magmas that are formed in the mantle. And it's, it's this carbon dioxide flux that helps to uh, cool down the magmas, make them crystallize, and make them evolve into the stuff that comes out at the top. Uh, something that we find with our gas measurements at the surface 
is if we look, for example, at carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide measurements, um, where there's the very, very busy part of that graph with lots and lots of data points, that's just the lava lake doing its usual thing. Uh, but when there are explosions, like the one you saw the video of, the gas composition is very different. It's much more uh, carbon dioxide rich compared to carbon monoxide. It's also more carbon dioxide rich relative to water. And this is actually telling us something about where those big bubbles that rupture at the surface, where, how deep down have they come from? Where have they originated? And this then feeds into our understanding of why do volcanoes switch their behavior? Why does this volcano go from being peaceful to being more violent? Uh, so there's one of these large lava bombs. The, um, the next little piece of the puzzle is the, the volcano, the lava lake is, has been around as long as anyone has looked at it. Uh, so it, it quite could easily have been there for centuries uh, and is a very stable feature of the volcano. And we think that very, very, a very rough model would be that there's some chamber of magma that's high up, up to the surface that is exposed in the lava lake. And we think that to, to keep this molten, we have to have a continuous supply of magma that comes up to the surface. So the magma has got a lot of gas in it. The gas fizzes out, and when it fizzes out, the magma is more dense, so it sinks back down the same height. So here's magma going up, here's magma coming down. And this is a conceptual model for how many volcanoes work, that they have a convection system inside the feeder pipe. And we wanted to test that model by looking at the, the large crystals. And we figured that these crystals probably, they can't grow to such great size overnight. And we think these crystals must, if, if there is a bi-directional flow, like a, a lift going up and down, that the crystals should be traveling with it. Sometimes they'll come up to the top, sometimes they'll sink back down again. And uh, with one of my um, students, Nisan, we looked very closely at these crystals, at the chemical composition, at the contents of carbon dioxide and water in those tiny inclusions in the zones. And we end up being able to model the, the life of a crystal. And uh, you, this is a section through a crystal showing the model depth that the crystal has, has experienced. And you can see the crystal's gone up and down and up and down. And this is the last year or so of the life of the crystal uh, before it was erupted. It came up near the surface, it went down to two kilometers down, then it came up to the surface and it was erupted uh, on the 24th of December in 2005. So this study really helped to uh, provide evidence, hard evidence, that we, we do have this kind of bi-directional flow in magma conduits. Now, I'd men I've mentioned already this, the, the breathing of the volcano, the 10-minute cycle of the lava level going up and down. And this uh, was very, very interesting observation because no one had seen it. You're just too far away, 300 meters away from the lava lake. You can't see it going up and down if you just go up and, and look over the edge of the crater. And the, the cycles first showed up in those gas measurements. We make those gas measurements every second with the infrared spectrometer. And this would be a plot 
Uh, every, every little dot here is one spectrum, just one second to the left. We're looking at carbon dioxide and water vapour, the two most abundant gases coming out of Erebus. And there's a whole spread of points there, but that scatter is actually real, because if you look in time, you can see a kind of cycle. The, the carbon dioxide to water ratio in the gas is, is going up and down, and the time scale of that is about 10 minutes. This was the very first set of data uh, that I looked at where I could see this 10-minute cycle in all the different gases I was measuring, water, carbon dioxide, uh, sulfur dioxide, hydrogen chloride, and uh, I couldn't believe it when I first saw this. I thought this has, I've done something wrong somewhere. And in the end, uh, we, we see this cycle just about every way we look at it. We, we can measure the surface velocity of the lava lake from our infrared images. So these are the infrared images going, stepping through uh, one image every few seconds. We use uh, an algorithm that detects the, the hot bits of the magma moving around shown in those uh, arrows. And uh, this is the, the average speed of the lava lake. And you can see this, this very clear kind of cyclic behavior. The volcano has uh, a pulse to it. And we can match up the, the velocity, the speed cycles. We can match it up uh, with the, the gas cycles. So the gas is shown here in blue. And uh, these are the, the, the motion, the surface motion. These things all match up when we look carefully at them. And now we're beginning to look at the lake level. And the lake level is also in phase with these changes in the gas composition, uh, the gas flux, and the surface speed of the lava lake. Uh, this is a, hu a huge puzzle, really. Why should this volcano, why should it have this cyclic behavior? And... Why, sh why should it have a 10-minute cycle? Why, if it does have a cycle, why isn't it five minutes or one hour? And this is one of the things that we're probing. There's a graduate student here now who's doing more laboratory experiments trying to simulate these kinds of oscillations. So uh, to, to sum up, uh, Erebus is a long way away. It is, um, it is very cold, uh, even in the summer in the austral summer. Uh, and the weather can be very bad and you can be stuck for a week in the camp with, without the possibility of doing any field work. Uh, when the conditions are good, it is, it's the best uh, volcano laboratory I, I could imagine uh, to, to make very detailed observations, looking at lots of different parameters, uh, looking also at the size, seismic events, and uh, to really probe how, how volcanoes work. If we can't understand why a volcano has a 10-minute pulse, it means there's something missing in our, our fundamental knowledge of how volcanoes work. So we, we've got a lot of insights from the, the roots of the volcano. We know that they're very deep down, perhaps down in the, in the upper part of the Earth's mantle. We know carbon dioxide is very important. It's very rich in CO2, <coughs> a strong emitter. We know uh, things are going on as the magmas ascend towards the surface. They're evolving. They're becoming uh, stickier and cooler. And eventually what comes out the top is this phonolite lava that uh, is similar to the AD79 material pumices from uh, Vesuvius. Uh, we see explosions. 
that are another enigma. Why do they switch on sometimes? That's something that we're still trying to understand. You see the cycles, you see the big crystals. And uh, lastly, one thing I didn't mention is that the emissions of gases into the Antarctic atmosphere have some interesting impacts. They, one of the things that we see downwind from the crater is a reduction in ozone. And that's very likely because of the bromine emissions from the volcano. The bromine is very reactive in the atmosphere and, and uh, depletes ozone. So it's, it's been uh, possible to, to go from the, the depths of the Earth uh, all the way up to the atmosphere. And I think that is it. Thank you very much. So the question is, how unique is Erebus, and is it, is it unique enough to make it worth going all this way? Uh, I mean, in, in some ways, every volcano, of course, is, has its own characteristics, um, and, and the environment does play a part, uh, the external environment does play a part. Of course, if a volcano is on the bottom of the ocean, it's the, under very high, experiencing high water pressure. If the volcano is in, the, in Indonesia, there's going to be a lot more rainfall. That can also have an impact on what, what goes on at the surface. Um, I, I think the, what's important is, is uh, in some ways, not so much that it's a unique volcano, uh, but because if it was so unique, then someone would say, well, if it's that unique, it, it, what you learn there is going to be useless for understanding any, anything else. Um, I think it's, it's an incredibly convenient place to work. Uh, it just happens that it's 35 kilometers from the largest scientific base in Antarctica. If it were in the middle of the continent, we couldn't... We couldn't do anything like this kind of, uh, of long-term study. Uh, so that's very important. It, um, it's also relatively benign. Okay, it does go bang from time to time, but you can get, you can get equipment set up around the crater rim and, and get these very, very detailed observations that you couldn't with something that's more explosive. Um, the fact that it does explode, though, from time to time means that you, you get to probe those, those transitions. So I think, yeah, I mean, it is, it is unique. In, uh, certainly it's the only volcano currently erupting this, this composition, but I think it gives, it gives us a lot of generic insights that are relevant to understanding volcanoes around the world. How interesting is Mount Terra? Because it isn't erupting, so is it interesting to you? Yeah, the question is, how, how interesting is Mount Terra? Um, it's a good question, and there, there's also uh, Mount Bird, which is another uh, extinct center. Uh, the Hut Point Peninsula, it, which is, um, extends to the south, west of Ross Island, uh, that's all, it's all volcanic. And uh, the volca volcanism there stretches back more than a million years. And it's, it's very interesting to, to understand the bigger picture of why, the, why there are volcanoes there in the first place. Uh, it becomes relevant to look at Erebus, compare it with Terra, compare it with Terra Nova, compare it with Mount Bird, uh, and to date the rocks as well so that we can see whether over time the, uh, the compositions have changed. Um, and this is also not the only bit of volcanism 
in this part of Antarctica. There's Mount Discovery, Mount Morning, Mount Melbourne. So there's quite a lot of volcanism associated with the rifting uh, along the Trans-Antarctic Mountains. So it, uh, there, there have been, um, Phil Kyle has had a project looking at the volcanism all over Ross Island uh, where they have been collecting samples. Um, of course, they don't have the option of collecting something that's freshly erupted, and uh, Mount Terror has much less rock exposure on it because it's, it's quite heavily glaciated and, and ice-covered. So there are more limited places unless you go and drill into it where you can retrieve the rocks. Yeah, you and then you, Lynn. Um, if, if the phonolites produced by... Erebus and Vesuvius are so similar, how come they produce such different eruptions? Is that something that could happen at Erebus as well, an explosion like that? Yeah, that's a really good. So the question is, um, if, if uh, Erebus and Vesuvius have the same kind of magma, how is it that Vesuvius produces this incredibly destructive explosive eruption and, and Erebus looks a lot more peaceful? Um, so here, the... One of the, the things that's important is, is the rate at which the magma is erupting. If, if there's a very high flux, flux of ma magma, uh, then it can mean that the gas doesn't have time to escape freely. And if the gas can't escape freely, then it's, it's as the magma is decompressing, rising to the surface, it's trying very hard, the bubbles are trying to ha very hard to expand to release the gas, but there, there just isn't <coughs> the time to do it. Uh, so that the rate of the eruption becomes, becomes very, very important. And uh, we even see this with a volcano like um, Mount Etna, which is, which is um, eruptive basalt, so it's quite hot and runny, and generally uh, it can be quite spectacular. Um, but uh, we, we find um, some prehistoric examples. We can find the rocks <coughs> that are much more widely dispersed uh, indicating that even a volcano like Etna can have an eruption like that of Mount St. Helens or Pinatubo. So we, we don't understand all the reasons, but it's probably a lot to do with the, the flux of magma coming up to the surface. And how deep is the rift? Uh, the rift, that's a good question, actually. Um, uh, I can't remember, actually. It's <laughs> 20 million years. Um, maybe more. <laughs> I got a thumbs up. <laughs> uh, I think you had a question again, Susan. Uh, are there any current theories as to why it's a 10 minute cycle rather than an hour or any other reason? Um, I don't think a good thing, I don't, I don't feel confident in, in the explanation, but the, uh, I think that it's probably to do with the, 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 the key thing is going to be the how, how runny the magma is, the viscosity of the magma, um, and how much gas it's got in, and the diameter of the conduit, uh, and, and the rate at which it's rising. So it's possible to estimate the rate of magma flux, because we know the gas flux, and we know how much gas there is in a kilo of magma. So we, we can get some estimate of the, the rise rate. And... The, the 10 minute period is about the period uh, that it would take to get a piece of magma that has the same length as the width of the conduit. Um, so I think, I think 
what it, what's going on is that the magma is coming up towards the surface. It's, it's fizzing out gas. The, de, the, the magma that's lost its gas has got kind of slipped down, back downwards. And I think it's, it's a little bit like holding the end of a hose and, and you, can, you can make that sputter. I think it's maybe this kind of an effect right, right near the surface uh, and that the 10 minutes is, is to do with the diameter of the conduit and if the conduit had a bigger diameter, maybe it would be a longer period. If it was a smaller one, maybe it would have a shorter period. But uh, I don't really know. <laughs> uh, Susan. Mm. Uh, question, how similar is, is Erebus to uh, the volcanoes in East Africa? Um, we, we haven't done many studies, and there, there are perhaps fewer studies of volcanoes like uh, Kilimanjaro. Kilimanjaro is quite similar. It's, uh, it's also associated with a rift, um, obviously with the East African rift system. Uh, Kilimanjaro also grows these big crystals. Um, perhaps the most, one of the most similar volcanoes is uh, Teide, El Teide in uh, Tenerife, which again is phonolytic, uh, but has this whole um, uh, progression of magmas from the very, the very primitive ones, the basalites that we call them, that come in at the bottom, to phonolites that come out at the top. Uh, and there I think there are, there are some interesting analogies, and also with Vesuvius. Um, and one of the things that, that uh, Phonolites, they're not all the same. They do have different <coughs> proportions of iron, different proportions of aluminium and uh, potassium and calcium. And these will make differences to the crystals that grow. They'll make differences to potentially to the behavior as well. So uh, I, think, I think it's very interesting actually to look at other volcanoes of similar composition. And, and we've thought about this, you know, this exact problem or question, why does Vesuvius uh, look very, very different to Erebus? Um, the picture of, of uh, the Terra Nova campsite, um, the, the rocks behind it are part of a, an ancient crater wall. And there's some evidence that that's the remnant of a much more powerful explosive eruption, uh, perhaps more than 30,000 years ago. So, uh, and we can find ash from Erebus, that we can fingerprint Erebus, we can find it in, in ice cores uh, hundreds of kilometers away. So in its past, it seems to have done more violent things. So I think it has that, still has that capacity. Does does the external temperature have an effect? Is the question. Um, I think the external environment has has an impact. I think if you took if you took Erebus to Java, I think it would look rather different. Uh, it would um, maybe it would have it would have a a lake, a crater lake of water um, that would be full of acid. Um, I don't think we we see. We don't see any evidence for um, major differences in, in the time period. Um, so the one, the one thing that we have is the, this thermal camera, which we run through uh, quite a bit of the, the time that we're not there. And 
in all the data, we, we don't really see any, any change in that. I mean, it's not exactly 10 minutes, it might be 18, it might be five, but it's, we can't see seasonal differences. Um, I think over time we've seen the level coming down, the overall level of the lake has come down. And we, again, we've been looking to see, is there a relationship between the, the height and the size of the lake in this period? And again, we just, we don't really see anything very consistent yet. Yeah, which is my favourite volcano. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, well, it has got to be this one, which is why I thought I'd talk about it tonight. Um, this one has been, it's, it's been very special, I think partly because you don't go there for a week. So a lot of the other work I'll do, I'll, I'll zip in and zip out. Uh, here I'm living on it. I'm not in a hotel having a nice pizza, you know, having walked down Stromboli in, in the evening. Um, and you're living under canvas with a small team, and so it's, it's got quite a, f a few sort of dynamics to it about doing the way you do the field work, that you're living there and you're living on, on the thing that you're studying. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's been very scientifically rewarding and, and very puzzling when you, one of the things uh, I quite like doing is just getting all of these data, and then I'll spend a lot of time plotting them every possible way and, and something, a pattern will emerge that just will uh, be inexplicable, but I'll spend quite a lot of time trying to convince myself I've just done something stupid in the way I've analyzed the data. Um, so I think it, it would have to be Erebus, yeah. And last December is, is the last year that we've had funded, so that might be my last trip. Uh, I thought I would um, blub as we, <laughs> as we took off from the helicopter, but I didn't, I was very brave. Um, and there are, the, the compensation is that we have got this project in Hawaii. Um, and I think Hawaii in December is also, is, is also quite a good way to get away from the British winter. Uh, as it's, this is the other great thing about it. I've, I've got away from, from the British winter you know, for the last 12, 13 years. Uh, going to Antarctica, it's cold, but it's, it doesn't rain in Antarctica. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> 